Welcome to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm Eric Douglas. A lot happened this week as employees at a federal prison had an informational picket to protest unsafe working conditions. WVU announced more cuts, this time to library services. Groups from Kanawha County are suing the EPA about cancer-causing chemicals. We learned what we all suspected. Historically black colleges and universities have been underfunded. And a small-town classified ad publication is closing its doors after 50 years. We'll also hear a feature story on the proposed silica dust rule as more and younger miners get black lung, a rebuttal story to our workforce series from a small business owner, and a story about the rise of COVID-19 once again. We'll jump right into it with a couple short news stories. On Friday, workers from Federal Correction Complex Hazleton in Preston County protested in Morgantown against what they called dangerously low staffing at the prison. Chris Schultz has this story. More than a dozen correctional officers, medical staff, and counselors from Hazleton lined Cheat Lake Road outside of Morgantown Friday morning to demand help at their federal correctional complex. Hazleton houses a correctional institution and women's facility, as well as a high-security U.S. penitentiary. Justin Teravisky is the union president of Local 420 of the American Federation of Government Employees at FCC Hazleton. He says the facility has more than 80 correctional officer positions vacant, which leaves other staff like teachers and counselors to fill in the gaps in a practice called augmentation. We're taking teachers away from their jobs to be augmented. We're taking other programs, the facilities, the workers. They're taking other staff that aren't correctional officers and they're putting them in correctional officer spots because we're vacated. Protesters say existing officers are often mandated to work 16-hour shifts several times a week. Tarvisky says the issue is further exacerbated by not having local hiring authority. He says applications to work at Hazleton are sent to a Bureau of Prisons office in Texas for review, and most are rejected. When you have a, a, a job fair in the heart of Morgantown, West Virginia, with 60 applicants and hardly any of them are hired, we have a problem with our hiring. The shortage poses safety risks for inmates and staff alike, as well as other problems. Lucretia Rowe is a nurse at Hazleton. She says reduced officer staffing means delays in getting inmates their medication. Our job is to provide treatment. We can't do that because they have to stay locked in because we don't have staff to let them out. Union members are asking the public to contact their federal representatives about the officer shortage. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Environmental groups are taking the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to court over emissions of a cancer-causing chemical in the Canal Valley. Curtis State has more. The law firm Earth Justice has sued EPA Administrator Michael Regan because the agency missed a 2022 deadline to issue new standards for facilities that emit ethylene oxide. Ethylene oxide is a flammable colorless gas that's used to manufacture other chemicals. It is carcinogenic even when people are exposed to it in small quantities. Adam Crone, an attorney for Earth Justice who's based in Washington, says the purpose of the lawsuit is to force the EPA to lock in a new rule by the end of next year. Uh, rules that don't have court-ordered deadlines often are the ones that get, tend to get pushed. The Federal Clean Air Act requires the EPA to review and revise emission standards for hazardous pollutants such as ethylene oxide every eight years. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. As part of its continuing restructuring in the face of a $45 million budgetary shortfall, West Virginia University has announced more planned cuts. Chris Schultz has more. 
WVU libraries will be asked to further reduce their budget by up to $800,000 as part of a review of 20 academic support units. Mark Gavin, the Associate Provost for Academic, Budget, Facilities, and Strategic Initiatives, says the cuts will come from reductions in staff positions without disrupting library offerings. This sounds like a heavy lift for a unit that has already seen reductions, but through restructuring efforts, the dean of the libraries is confident that she can realize these savings without negatively impacting service levels for students, faculty, and staff. The university's recommendation also includes an evaluation of the physical footprint of the libraries, but Gavin says it does not include the closing of any library facilities. Unlike academic units, academic support units are not subject to the Board of Governors' rules and will not have a chance to appeal. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. And another story from Chris Schultz. On Monday, the Biden administration sent letters to 16 governors, including Governor Jim Justice, about HBCU funding. The letter from U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona and U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Thomas Vilsack to Justice addressed the, quote, ongoing underinvestment in West Virginia State University. The Second Moral Act of 1890 mandated that states either consider black students equally or found separate land-grant schools for them. Eric Cage, WVSU president, says what he calls 1890 schools across the country have had to do more with less since their inception. This issue is not unique to West Virginia State, but to all 1891s, trying to operate at a high level but without uh, the requisite funding that we need. Cage points towards the passage of House Bill 3371 earlier this year as a sign that West Virginia is recommitting to West Virginia State University and its land-grant mission. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The Old Mountain Trader Free Newspaper that serves southern West Virginia has closed after a 50-year run. Brianna Haney has this story. Debbie Salengo started the paper from a two-bedroom trailer. Her husband had been working long hours, and she had been selling afghans and babysitting to try to make it by. But the money she was spending to advertise in the classified section of the newspaper was making it hard to make money. So I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. My first publication was four letter-sized typewritten pages, front and back, stapled together, and it was 25 cents. And uh, I went into the stores not knowing what I was doing. The paper ended up being a success. At one point, there were over 72 pages of ads. It was West Virginia's oldest free classified advertising paper. The paper is closing because Debbie Salengo is retiring and picking back up where she left off 50 years ago, babysitting. Except this time, it'll be her grandchildren. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. And now we'd like to highlight a few of the feature stories we shared this week. First a draft rule to protect coal miners from exposure to silica dust garnered more than 5,200 comments from advocates and the American public. Emily Rice has the story. For decades, the nation's top health officials have urged the Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, the federal agency in charge of mine safety, to adopt strict rules to protect miners from rock dust. In recent years, the problem has only grown as miners dig through more rock layers to get to less accessible coal, generating deadly silica dust in the process. Rebecca Shelton, the director of policy at the Appalachian Citizens Law Center, said an MSHA inspector would visit mine quarterly to take an air sample to test for silica dust. According to Shelton, those measurements are not taken regularly
securely enough, and she and other experts are unhappy with the current rule, which allows miners to be exposed to silica dust at 100 micrograms per cubic meter of air for an eight-hour shift. That 100 microgram standard is not one that's supported by organizations or entities, other health institutions like the National Institution of Occupational Safety and Health. They, for many decades, have recommended an exposure level that's half of that. So we've known for a long time that this exposure level is too high. On July 13th, MSHA proposed a rule that would cut the current limit for silica exposure in half, down to 50 micrograms per cubic meter of air for an eight-hour shift. That level matches the standards set by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The new rule would also set up protocols for sampling and monitoring silica dust exposure levels. For example, it now asks that coal operators do some amount of sampling for silica dust. Our understanding is that the agency would still continue its quarterly sampling for silica dust. And if there are samples that are returned over that 50 microgram limit, that permissible exposure limit, they will require the operators, the mine operators, to take corrective actions to reduce that limit. However, after decades of inaction, miners and advocates worry about the government following through on these rules. In addition, they don't think the rule does enough to protect miners. One we feel uncomfortable with the amount of lives that this rule is projected to affect because it's not many. The, the analyses in the rule actually project that fewer than 100 coal miners' lives will be saved while hundreds continue to get sick. A public comment period on the new rule was extended to September 11th to allow additional time to develop and submit comments on the proposal. It's quite a variety of folks who have participated in this comment, um, former miners, organizations like ours who care about the health of minors, and also the industry has participated as well. Doctors, a lot of folks who are, are directly involved in and have been directly involved in treating minors who have been ill with this black lung disease. More than 5,200 individuals signed on to a petition created by Appalachian Voices and Appalachian Citizens Law Center, backing a stronger rule. Several desired changes to the rule were consistent throughout the comment process. Commenters want the rule enforced on a more frequent basis and for routine sampling to be performed by MSHA, not coal operators. One of the things that we care a lot about is enforcing this new exposure limit based on more frequent and routine sampling conducted by the Mine Safety and Health Administration and not conducted, not relying on coal operator sampling, especially because the sampling technology that they have proposed in the rule is an old sampling technology that is easily manipulable by operators in, or, in order to try to reduce what that sample returns. Commenters also ask for stronger criteria for citations and to provide clear penalties for those violating the rule. We do think that the rule needs to have more specificity around the criteria for issuing citations and, and penalizing operators who violate the rule. The, 
the requirements or the process for issuing citations or what will trigger a citation is not clear in the rule. Advocates for minors with black lung also asked that the new rule include provisions to temporarily shut down mines in violation of silica dust limits, rather than allowing them to stay open and rely on minors to use respirators. We do not think that it is a bad thing to have respirators and extra protection on hand. We think that that absolutely should be the case, but that if and when a mine can a mine is has dust levels that are over that safe exposure limit, we think that production should be shut down and that miners should be withdrawn until corrective actions can take place so that the ventilation plans, the engineering controls are adequate to reduce dust levels uh, back down to a safer level. Lastly, commenters, advocates, and miners ask for the rule to phase in better sampling technology. Rather than grounding the rule or having the rule rely on the current sampling technology that's available, that the rule be technology forcing, and then it will adopt better technology as it becomes available. And, you know, we know that that these kinds of regulations and rules can produce the demand for better technology. And so we really want to see that change. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. West Virginia's economic development Workforce and education leaders are focused on getting skilled laborers for the technological and industrial jobs pouring into the state. But what about the many small businesses that need workers for simpler, hands-on jobs? As we wind up our series, Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force, Randy Yowie talks to small business owner Brent Sears, who has a rebuttal after hearing our story on the job-seeking services the state's prime workforce agency provides. I know there are people out there that need work. I don't know how to find them, and I'm not having much luck with workforce. For 112 years, the Sears Monument Company has served funeral homes and cemeteries throughout West Virginia. Owner Brent Sears says since his grandfather started the business, with offices now in Charleston, Huntington, and Beckley, they've tried to hire people to do the basic cemetery monument industry's job. Engrave our granite that we sell to people We order it in sized and finished to the family specifications, and then we actually add the names, sandblast the names in, and do the carving work, and then we load the monuments onto our truck, trucks, and take them to the cemetery and install them with a concrete foundation below them. Sears says he took exception when he heard my story with Acting Commissioner of Workforce West Virginia, Scott Adkins. I noted in the question and answer piece that in the About Us tab on the Workforce West Virginia website, it says, the agency has a network of workforce development services to provide citizens and employers the opportunity to compete in today's global economy. I asked Atkins what Workforce West Virginia is doing to fill positions for a variety of businesses and industries and corporations now coming to West Virginia. We help employers recruit uh, qualified applicants uh, virtual job fairs, on-site job fairs. We do upskilling, retraining. We work with the uh, Higher Education Policy Commission, uh, DHHR, a bunch of different uh, partners at the state level to make sure we're finding the right people for the right job. Sears says for years now, the Workforce West Virginia focus on virtual job fairs and upscale retraining has failed to help him get his needed $12 an hour laborers. And most of the people that I'm trying to hire may or may not have cell phones, may or may not have computers. They can't do the virtual things that workforce is trying to 
gear everybody to do. It used to be that we would call, we would send in our job, and then they would send us people. But in the last five years, and even worse, or current in the last two years, it, it just doesn't happen. In my interview with Atkins, I asked how his agency gauged success. Did we take somebody who was unemployed or underemployed, put them in a position that they succeed in, but also at the same time meeting whatever void or need that employer has, which is critical. Sears says in his interactions with Workforce West Virginia, his company's labor needs are not being met. I need people that, that have a Class D as in dog license and that can use a shovel and a wheelbarrow and can pull heavy loads up steep hills with another person and the use of equipment like dollies and cranes. Uh, it's hard work, but it's constant work. And I'm not the only employer out there uh, trying to find employees. I do talk to other business people in the community, and it's rampant everywhere. Atkins said the state is trying to create a sort of self-service, one-stop job-seeking operation across all state agencies. Sears says he knows there are people out there that can work that are not actively seeking a job. And he needs the state to do more to get them employed and his business thriving again. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoey in Charleston. That's the final story in our Help Wanted series. Visit our website at wvpublic.org to see the complete package. As fall arrives, COVID-19 numbers are starting to increase. Just this week, the Department of Health and Human Resources released the latest COVID-related death numbers, and they indicated 15 more people had died in just the last week. Sherry Young, the Interim Secretary of the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources and incoming Secretary for the Department of Health, spoke with Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice about the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So tell me about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic and what the public needs to know. So one thing that the public needs to be aware of is that we have gotten to the point where we can manage and live with COVID, but there's some things that we can do to keep ourselves safe. And with keeping ourselves safe, that means that if we feel sick or we feel like we have a cold, let's test for COVID. Let's make sure that that's not the case. Um, If you do test positive, you don't have to report it, but uh, you should take the proper um, mitigations to make sure that you reduce the risk of spreading it to other people. And that means staying staying home and staying away from others for five days uh, until you're asymptomatic. And then if you return to work for the next five days for the 10 day total, uh, that you'd wear a mask and just be respectful of your coworkers and people in the general public. The FDA and CDC have approved a new COVID-19 vaccine to target variants of the virus. Is that vaccine available in West Virginia? Yes. So as soon as the ACIP made their recommendation last week for those over the age of six months um, to get that shot, uh, they started shipping out from uh, from the warehouses into our pharmacies and into our local health departments. So we'd recommend maybe calling just ahead of time just to make sure that they do have the availability. But most of those have already been shipped. So the availability for that updated uh, vaccine is is, um, right in our back door. It's a great opportunity. And while you're there, you may want to think about that flu shot as well. The new vaccine is recommended for West Virginians ages six months and older, but who will be able to get the shot? Right. So the difference now is that at the when we first had vaccines back in the heights of the pandemic, we were 
we were uh, giving out, out as about as fast as we could um, and trying to keep up with demand. So the priority had to be around those who had um, illnesses, those who are older, more vulnerable, and then the recommendations came for, for the younger folks. Um, the great thing now is that we have the availability for most anybody who wants to get that COVID vaccine, but we still need to make it a priority and educate ourselves on the fact that those who have um, immune disorders or maybe on medications that make their immune system weaker, they do need to make it themselves a priority uh, to get those vaccines because that's going to help them um, stave off and, and uh, uh, hopefully help them from getting COVID. And if not so, uh, then at least having a less severe case in, in, uh, due to their medical illnesses. What can you tell me about long COVID? Will this new vaccine protect against it? At different times uh, throughout the pandemic, we've identified people who just did not get better uh, from the initial stages, and that can be respiratory illnesses, fatigue, um, a, a plethora of things, anything from the loss of uh, smell and taste that people experience. Some of the minor symptoms as well as some very major symptoms uh, are lingering in people who have had COVID. The research that we do have available is that it is much less likely to develop long COVID uh, if you've had the vaccine. And that's because your body has a better ability and can recognize that virus faster because you've had the vaccine. It gets your immune system ready to say, hey, this is a, a potential threat to us. And it helps you mount that, um, that defense for your body against uh, COVID. Can you speak to the recent increase in infections and hospitalizations we've seen attributed to COVID-19? You know, as we are going into the winter months, we started seeing an uptick around late August, early September, which is when kids go back to school. That's also when we start to see other respiratory illnesses. So in some ways, COVID is starting to behave like other respiratory illnesses that we see. Uh, when we first were introduced to COVID, there was a, a, a different pattern pattern um, that, that we were seeing with it. This gives us the ability to have some time, perfect the, um, the, the vaccination updates and make sure that they're appropriate for what we are seeing at the time. And, and for right now, the uh, strains that we are seeing are the ones that are um, pre present in the vaccines. So we do see an uptick. We've seen an uptick of about 3.2% in uh, emergency room visits as well due to COVID. The way that we monitor it is a little bit different because people do have home tests and other things that don't get reported the same way. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. That was Dr. Sherry Young speaking with Emily Rice about COVID-19 for Appalachia Health News. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. A new documentary about Appalachia is being shown next week at the Mountain Craft Film Festival in Clarksburg. Je suis hantée par cet lieu. All at once, I'm frightened by it, and somehow head over heels for it. But it's been exploited. Too often, Appalachian despair sells books, movies, and news, obscuring the heart of this place. But if you filter through these loud voices, vous trouverez quelque chose qui vaut la peine d'être sauvé. An opening partly in French isn't what you might expect in a film set in West Virginia, but O Pioneer is unusual. Inside Appalachia's Bill Lynch spoke with Jonathan Lecoque and Clara Lehman, the makers behind their film, and what O Pioneer means. To put it in a soundbite, O Pioneer is trying to reckon with and redefine what it means to be a pioneer. And it's a heavy, complex word, and it either has this very 
exploitative connotation for, in a historical context, or it can be even unreachable in a like, okay, there's suddenly these amazing inventions that happen and now you're a pioneer, right? Or you've um, found this new method to you know, solve a problem and you're a pioneer. It's like negative or super positive. Right. And like we're trying to reckon with that. Yeah, it's like take the viewpoint of the guy or the woman who goes to space or that creates a new scientific breakthrough, but look at like everyday moments, some sort of troubling, challenging experience. Like I feel like there's just as much beauty in that, you know, sort of pioneering moment of like, I'm not going to react the way that maybe we as humans might easily go just because of who we are as beings, you know. Um, I think a lot of the film is about how we respond to things too. We always have a choice on how we react to a situation. And I feel like there can be a pioneering spirit within those sometimes little moments. Animation plays quite a bit and it kind of creates a kind of a magical sort of reality that goes along with uh, your storytelling there. Lots. Why don't you take lead on that question? Yeah, so Claire and I own a creative studio here in Helvetia called Coat of Arms and our bread and butter is storytelling, usually shorter content and that can be anything from you know, ex what you might call an explainer video or a video for a corporation to a short film that we would do ourselves or work with a filmmaker on. When we started filming, we thought it was just gonna be filming, but the pandemic happened. And so we weren't able to so easily film with our characters at first. So we sent them, you know, like record audio recorders and started brainstorming on how do we visually represent these stories where we can't capture them visually. And so that's where we sort of looked at our skill set and then you know how are we going to represent it animation would be would be a lovely way to do that yeah but i think reenactments can come in different forms and um, people have used animation before for the in the exact same way as we do but we also i feel like we tried really hard not to make them feel like reenactments more like mm -hmm. they are an extension of the person so like jonathan said we paired a style with each character and then that allowed us to then make sure that you, when you see that coming on the frame, kind of start to subliminally recognize, okay, this palette, this character, this type of uh, type of illustration is with Tim or James or Nellie. With something like this, where you're kind of you know, stepping into someone's life a little bit, how do you know when to stop? It is a, it's a challenge for sure to know when to stop. And one thing that I will say is I, I think that what this film does is show us how, every, how much everybody goes through. Like, none of it was planned in terms of what each character deals with. And I feel like if any person anywhere has a film crew following them for two years, three years, we will see how incredible people are, you know? And that's really what, in my mind, is really hopeful and inspiring about the film. That was Bill Lynch speaking with Jonathan Lecoque and Clara Lehman about their documentary, O Pioneer. The film will be shown September 30th at the Mountain Craft Film Festival in Clarksburg. You can hear the rest of that story on Inside Appalachia, Sunday mornings at 7, Sunday evenings at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Eric Douglas.